0: Hello, um, my name is Shirley Debono. I'm downstairs in, in the, in the uh, lobby area, and I'd like to speak to Martin Jones, the CEO of the Parole Board. Okay. I'm Shirley Debono. I'm from the campaign group IPP Committee in Action, and I'd like to speak to Martin Jones, the CEO at the Parole Board.
1: This is Shirley De Bono. I've come to meet her at the Parole Board HQ in Canary Wharf, to find out why she'd taken an early bus from Cardiff to try to meet Martin Jones, the CEO of the Parole Board, in person. And you're... you
0: expecting your is call? No, but I think um, he will come down to see me. Is he
1: in Shirley is told her? me that she'd just heard that her son Sean's parole was going to be delayed. He'd been recalled back to prison for the fourth time in September 22, which his licence conditions allow the Probation Service to do. Fearing for his mental health, she had decided to take direct action.
0: Nobody wants to be accountable for the deaths, the failings. Nobody wants to be accountable. And the only way to do it is people like us to get up and do this. Make people accountable. Get in their faces. Yeah, they've got, we have got to get in their faces.
1: Shirley didn't get to meet Martin Jones that day, but she did get an email from the parole board saying it's likely that Sean's parole will go ahead as planned. Which is encouraging news. Well, she hopes so, anyway. Sean is serving an IPP sentence. IPP stands for Imprisonment for Public Protection. It's a sentence that was abolished back in 2012. But there are still 2,916 people, including Sean, who are imprisoned on this indeterminate sentence. And like Sean, they don't know when, if ever, they are getting out. So he first went in in 2006? Right? In 2005. In 2005. Sean was one of the first people to be given an IPP sentence back in 2005, the year they were introduced.
0: When did you know or understand what an IPP was? I didn't. He got sentenced to the IPP.
1: Sean was given an IPP sentence for a street robbery of a mobile phone. His original tariff was two years and six
0: months. But when he was actually sentenced, it was like you're sentenced to, you know, two and a half year tariff with the indeterminate centres for the protection of the public added. So we're thinking rehabilitation courses. And to this day, I think that's what the judge thought as well.
1: This is Trapped, episode three. I'm Sama Samadu, and today we're hearing Shirley and Sean's story. And we're going back into the history to understand where IPPs came from.
0: There's no way that judge would have sentenced him to an IPP sentence for a non-violent t- crime like that if he thought that Sean would be in prison. Nine years, and recalled every two years. You know, I don't think judges would have dished it out if only they would have known. Sean's in prison, and we're thinking, right, Sean, OK, you did wrong. You done a robbery, those people were frightened. I wouldn't want someone coming behind me or however you approached them and steal my phone off me, Sean. So you're going to prison for two and a half years. But two and a half years went, and he didn't get out on the parole. And then another two and a half years goes, because I thought, well, maybe they're making you do the whole five years. And he didn't get his parole then. And that's when I really knuckled into it to find out what it was. Like, I was learning along the way that he's on this indeterminate sentence. But it wasn't until the five-year point that I realised this sentence is a life sentence through the back door.
1: A life sentence through the back door... Shirley isn't the first person to say this about IPPs, which have become a national scandal since they were first introduced back in 2005 under New Labour. According to Shirley, Sean became addicted to drugs whilst inside. His licence conditions have revolved around the addiction. A missed appointment for a drug clinic or meeting with his probation officer has sent him back to prison over and over again. He's been recalled to prison four times every two years since he was first released
0: I never had a clue out to email or anything like that so all my letters to the ministers would be handwritten
1: Sean's IPP journey has turned his mother Shirley and many other family members of IPP serving prisoners into long-term campaigners for justice
0: I wrote to the Queen I wrote to Prince Charles I wrote to the Pope I wrote to everybody I can think of about this sentence and about my son. And I had replies from them from all, but it's like the same old reply. You know, that uh, they have to prove themselves safe for release in front of a parole board and blah, blah, blah. So no matter who you wrote to, you got the same letter back. Yeah, it's like as if they went in a box on the floor, You yeah, sign it, post it. That's how I felt, like nobody cared.
1: To understand where this all comes from, I'm taking a look back to the political climate in which IPPs were created. In the early 1990s, both Labour and the Conservative Party found a rare consensus around being seen to be tough on crime. The result was tougher sentencing and a 50% increase in the prison population between 1993 and 2012. In 1998, anti-social behaviour orders were introduced to Parliament by Tony Blair in the Crime and Disorder Act. Remember ASBOs? a supposed solution to nuisance neighbours and antagonistic teens, critics claimed it was a symbol of the Blair government's creeping authoritarianism.
2: Even taken place. Very nice.
1: A few months before his resignation, in an interview with the BBC, Tony Blair said...
3: If we're not prepared to predict and intervene far more early, then there are children that are going to grow up in families that we know perfectly well are completely dysfunctional and the kids a few years down the line, are going to be a menace to society and actually a threat to themselves. I'm interested in how early, because a lot of the evidence suggests you need to be getting in there while the child is still in nappies, frankly. Or pre-birth, even.
1: It was from this tough-on-crime environment that pervaded Britain from the early 1990s onwards that IPP sentences were born.
3: A Menace to society and actually a threat to themselves. Or pre-birth, even.
1: Before 2005, indeterminate sentences were reserved for murder, the most serious cases of manslaughter, TBH, and rape. With the Criminal Justice Act of 2003, David Blunkett, the then Home Secretary, widened that remit and introduced a new indeterminate sentence, the IPP, which had no fixed length, the parole board would decide if he were worthy of release. Implemented from April 2005, the idea was that IPP prisoners would have to prove they were not a risk to the public before they were released. It was designed to improve public
4: protection, but it went wrong. I'm David Blunkett, I'm now a member of the House of Lords. I was for eight years a member of the Cabinet under Tony Blair and for three and a half of those years I was the Home Secretary.
1: In order to find out more, I met the architect of the IPP Sentence, David Blunkett, now Lord Blunkett, in a room he booked for us buried deep in the bowels of the House of Lords. It was the first time I'd been past the lobby. I imagined the wheeling and dealing that had taken place there as I walked through the hallowed corridors of power in Westminster. David, thank you so much for being with us today. You presented the white paper Justice for All, which introduced the term indeterminate sentence to Parliament in 2002. How important was that white paper in the context of your government's legacy?
4: Well, we were trying to engage with a very wide reform of the criminal justice system, which resulted in the Criminal Justice Sentencing Act 2003. The backcloth were those who'd been in prison for a very long time under previous legislation who had no hope of getting out because there were no therapies, no courses and no uh, recourse through to the parole board. And I was exercised by that, but I was also exercised by examples, including people who'd been released and immediately committed rape and, in some cases, murder, who clearly needed to be dealt with in a way that the system at that time was unable to achieve. So we were trying a a, a two-hander, if you like, of dealing with an injustice uh, in terms of sentencing from the past and a a major issue of risk. Now, the latter may well have been, in my mind, over-exaggerated because I was affected by the families of cases where had that care and attention to the sentence and to not letting people out who were clearly a risk, had that not happened, their loved ones would not have been murdered or raped.
1: Tony Blair's government predicted that the IPP would be given to just 900 offenders. It seemed designed to target murderers who had previously spent time in prison, but had been released and went on to commit further crimes, such as convicted sex offender Roy Whiting, who murdered Sarah Payne, chronic offenders Sean Armstrong, who murdered Rosie Palmer, and Levi Belfield, who murdered Millie Dowler. But in the end, it was given out far more widely and for much less serious offences.
4: You're affected both ways. I'm now affected by the hurt and the distress of those individuals and their families on IPP. So I've almost come full circle in in this Endeavor.
1: So, how exactly does the IPP sentence work? I asked Harry Anison, criminologist at Southampton Law School, to break it down for me.
2: The Imprisonment for Public Protection Sentence, known as the IPP sentence, is inform a life sentence in the English sense. So you have a tariff period, which is what the the offence committed is worth. And then beyond that, you have potentially lifelong imprisonment, which is indeterminate. So the person will only be able to achieve release if they can convince a parole board that it's no longer necessary for for the protection of the public that they remain detained in prison.
1: So what kinds of offences were IPP sentences given for?
2: Now, the IPP sentence is much more expansive than the than the traditional life sentence.
1: Harry told me that any one of 153 offences, including robbery, could trigger an IPP.
2: And if the individual was considered to be dangerous, which was that they presented a significant risk of serious harm through the commission of further offences. And this was decided by the judge. They could... Uh, request expert testimony, they could request a pre-sentence report for example, but they were not required to do so. So in in principle a judge could decide that this individual was dangerous.
1: Going from less than 10 offences that could trigger a life sentence to 153 including robbery, even as an unintended consequence, seemed incredible to me. Anyway, let's get back to Harry's point that judges were asked to hand out IPP sentences based on their perception that the offender before them was potentially dangerous.
2: And that decision making, uh, that early decision sticks with someone. So they were going to prison, labelled as a dangerous offender, and then moving through to the parole process many years later, they need to disprove uh, or rebut that assumption of dangerousness and demonstrate to the parole that they can be safely managed in the community.
1: With such a long list of crimes and based on the judges' perceptions of risk, you can see how the system started to fail. We now know that between 2005 and 2012, 8,711 people in England and Wales were given an IPP sentence. It was a huge number. At the same time, the sentence was clearly becoming problematic because IPP prisoners were not being released. I asked Lord Blunkett to tell me when he noticed the warning signs.
4: It became clear very quickly. I think by 2007, it was clear that this was not working, that people were being sentenced in an inappropriate way. And I understand why the judges did that, because we weren't clear enough in the primary legislation. But Jack Straw, who became Justice Secretary, having been Home Secretary prior to myself, actually did then try and make adjustments to indicate to the judiciary that this was for serious crimes. It wasn't for something where you would be sent down for 18 months, two years. That still didn't work. And by 2012, the coalition government had decided that they should set this aside, which is what Ken Clark was trying to do. Uh, To be fair to him, he ran into real obstacles. I mean, he's very open about this. He says that the then Prime Minister, David Cameron, said it was far too politically risky to do what was necessary, which would have been at that stage to have resentenced those who were still subject to the IPP sentence.
5: I always uh, disapproved of these indeterminate sentences. I thought they were likely to be, uh, you know, lead to sort of grotesque increases in the prison population and there'd be some injustice.
1: This is Ken Clark, now Lord Clark. Unlike my meeting with Blunkett the week before, I met him in the lobby of the House of Lords. We trundled around looking for a quiet place to talk, finally finding a corridor just outside the upper chamber where the Lords debate. And then I just wanted to ask, um, you said that Lord Blunkett was a great help. To you. I think he, he spoke to us on Friday and said that it was in 2011, I think that he came to you. Meeting Lord Clark face to face, I hoped I would really be able to dig in and ask him questions about how and why he went about abolishing the IPP sentence when he was Justice Secretary under David Cameron in 2012.
5: So when I found myself Justice Secretary and Lord Chancellor, I wanted to reform the law in this respect and I wanted to introduce the Criminal Justice Bill, getting rid of a lot of the minimum sentences and most importantly, getting rid of the indeterminate sentences. Uh, The difficulty was getting the consent of my colleagues, and in particular of the Prime Minister, David Cameron, who was as anxious to prove that he was tough on crime as Tony Blair had been when he got David Blunkett to introduce these things in the first place.
1: My main question, which IPP serving prisoners and their families have repeatedly expressed to me, was why Law Clark hadn't retrospectively abolished the IPP sentence in 2012. This meant that while no-one was given an IPP after December 2012, there were still thousands of prisoners who were saddled with this problematic, now historic, indeterminate sentence which carried a 99-year licence should they ever be released into the community.
5: When we abolished it, you had to have some way in which you could keep in the most dangerous. And the difficulty is, it is quite difficult to judge with prisoners in prison which of them are going to reoffend and which aren't. One of the biggest duties on a prison, in my opinion, is to try to rehabilitate the prisoners. Get those that want to go straight to go straight. You're serving the public by saving them from the future crimes that this person might otherwise commit.
1: Future crimes? It sounds like the stuff of science fiction. Steven Spielberg's 2002 film Minority Report comes to mind, where crimes can be predicted before they happen, leading to arrests happening before a crime is committed. But can we really predict the crimes that someone is going to commit? And more to the point, should we even try?
5: And one reason why I was able to get it through the House of Commons, which might have been difficult, having got it past my Prime Minister, but I got it through the House of Commons without too much difficulty, because they've all got the... Right-wing newspapers demanding they're tougher on crime behind them, uh, but it was because I got this energetic support from David Blunkett, who admitted they weren't working out at all as they were intended.
4: The reason it went so badly wrong was that we didn't anticipate, which is why I've indicated my considerable regret about this personally, because obviously I was Home Secretary at the time, so I carry prime responsibility. We we didn't anticipate the way in which this would be implemented uh, long after I'd I'd left the Home Office. We didn't anticipate the way in which judges uh, would interpret uh, the sentence and therefore, uh, on very low tariffs, would give an indeterminate sentence, which has led people to be in years and years after they would otherwise have been released. And between us all, we made a terrible mess of it.
1: It's rare to hear a politician of Blunkett's stature admit he is wrong but I noticed he'd repeatedly implicated the judges in
6: this mistake. David Blunkett, who introduced it, uh, thinks that the uh, judiciary, or has said on occasions, over-applied this, but that doesn't truly hold water, I'm afraid.
1: To get another perspective on this, I met Nick Cook, a retired senior circuit judge who sat at the Old Bailey. At a busy café, I asked him to tell me more about how judges viewed IPPs at the time, did they misunderstand why and what the sentence was designed for?
6: The reality is that the legislation was pretty clear as to what you had to do. Um, and the Court of Appeal, which dealt with some appeals around the time, didn't say that this is being hugely over-applied.
1: From 2005 to 2008, the sentence was mandatory if the offender had committed one of the 153 specified offences and if a judge decided, based on the evidence and history before them, that there was a significant risk to members of the public of being harmed by further such offences.
6: It was amended to reduce the number of cases that would be caught by the trigger after three years.
1: The amendments removed the statutory assumption of dangerousness and reduced the list of specified offences. Key was the replacement of the word must with may in the legislation, allowing more discretion for judges.
6: The problem with this sentence is that it's mechanistic. There was a trigger which meant you had to pass this sentence if you're a judge sentencing unless you could find exceptional circumstances. So I don't actually think it was a want of training. I think it was that the legislation was fundamentally flawed and the judges were perfectly capable of following the legislation and didn't feel they had an alternative, which they didn't. We're not there to make it up as we go along. If Parliament does it, you have to follow what they say.
1: You said you were a part-time judge in 2005 when a sentence was brought in. Did you give out IPPs yourself? Yes,
6: um, but the first one I did, I did find exceptional circumstances. I can remember that case, obviously, I can't remember the name and it wouldn't be appropriate for me to name it. But it was one of the cases that was absurd to be caught by this, it involved a dispute by a man over... His neighbour was um, pouring the lawn clippings over the fence and so this man, obviously completely wrongly, hit him caused a minor injury and the trigger system was such that this made him liable potentially to imprisonment for public protection. He had a historic conviction that triggered it, totally unconnected, uh, and I went out on a limb and found exceptional circumstances.
1: Imagine if Judge Cook hadn't found exceptional circumstances in this case. Someone would have been locked up indefinitely for having a punch-up with their neighbour over some hedge clippings. People are serving IPPs for less.
6: I'm not subscribing to the idea that you can simply say anybody who received these sentences um, was safe. It's a much more complex issue than that. And I remember passing such a sentence, for example, on someone who uh, committed an offence of arson with intent to endanger life. Now, they might have got life imprisonment, but it wasn't, in the light of the authorities at the time, serious enough to get you life imprisonment. On the other hand, the evidence was not that this person was mentally ill, so I couldn't make a hospital order. And anyone who commits the offence of arson with intent to danger life is at least potentially dangerous. And he um, triggered the operation of the sentence. So it's not as simple as saying they were all minor cases. There are serious cases. And that's why resentencing, as suggested by the Select Committee, was a sensible way forward because the people who would committed a street robbery, I'm not belittling the seriousness of street robbery, but possibly on the sentencing levels of the time were three and a half, four years in prison, something like that. Some of the people who have committed offences like that are still in custody 15, 18 years later. Um, That's crazy.
1: In October 2022, the Justice Select Committee recommended re-sentencing for all IPP prisoners for this reason to give a chance for prisoners on short tariffs to convert from an indeterminate sentence to one with a fixed length proportional to the crimes they had committed. Most IPPs have served their time many times over by now. However, this recommendation for resentencing was rejected in February 2023 by Dominic Raab when he was Justice Secretary. We're still waiting to see if the new Justice Secretary, Alex Chalk, will reverse this policy and allow resentencing of the IPP prisoners.
7: My name is um, Simon Brown, Lord Brown of Eton under Heywood. I'm a cross-bench peer. I came to the House of Lords in January 2004 as a law lord.
1: Lord Brown of Eton under Heywood was the first but not last to call the sentence the greatest single stain on the British justice system. He's iconic in the IPP fight for justice. And so I was keen to meet him when I went to the House of Lords an IPP prisoner. Is indeterminate detention a type of
7: psychological torture? Yes, I mean, uh, I think it is, because I do think that, um, and as the years pass, I mean, these people live in, well, I think I once described it as I reminded me, a um, Kafkaesque situation. They live in a total uncertainty as to the future. They despair, understandably. I mean, it's a nightmare for them, and they really don't know how on earth it's ever going to come to an end. And that, of course, is also. Lord Brown was
1: a Justice of the Supreme is... Court from 2009 to 2012, and a High Court Judge and then Lord Justice of Appeal between 1984 and 2002.
7: Well, having been a judge, although I never actually sentenced anybody to an IPP sentence, because by that time, Uh, Well, they took effect from 2005. I was already in the House of Lords. My sentencing days were long past, and so um, I never sentenced anybody to that, but I did sit on a group of appeals in the House of Lords, on IPPs, and got to realise what a catastrophic move it had been to um, introduce this system, which um, in its earliest manifestation, uh, was a draconian, gave almost um, no, or indeed very often literally no, discretion to judges. They were bound to assume dangerousness and pass one of these sentences in far, far more cases than anybody had ever contemplated. So you, as a judge, kept
1: a sort of keen eye on this, but when did you first notice that IPPs were going
7: off track? Well, I took over, in a sense, the championing of the cause of these IPP, this cohort of prisoners, from the Lord Lloyd of Berwick, who used to sponsor their cause, but retired. Uh, I mean, he's um, um, even older than I am, and uh, retired some years ago, and I then, so to speak, um, took on the heat and burden of their cause. Um, But, I mean, the uh, injustice uh, grows... Um, By the year, so it is even more conspicuous now Mm -hmm. that it is a deeply unfair system than it was even in his time. And so as the years passed, uh, one's outrage and one's recognition that it is indeed the great stain on English justice that I once described it as is apparent.
1: I now understand more about the political climate from which IPPs came, but what about the social climate? Why do politicians get so exercised about the perceived risk from offenders and the need for public protection?
5: Under the pressure from the right-wing newspapers, successive governments send more and more and more people to prison for longer and longer because the public foolishly believe this has some effect on the amount of crime we have, which has no effect, whatever, uh, on the amount of crime we suffer. Uh, and the result is that prisons get overcrowded. They get, you know, have to bang them up for 23 hours a day in, in, in a cell and so on. And the actual capacity to find space for and to avoid providing rehabilitation, training and all the rest of it gets very, very limited.
1: So Ken Clark thinks the right-wing press puts pressure on the government to be tough on crime. I asked some experts to dig into this for us.
2: I think it's fair to say that there's an unintended consequence here, which is that the more governments tend to talk about criminal justice, the more that they try and talk about the extent to which they're dealing with problems in the system, perhaps the more that actually increases public insecurity about criminal justice. That increases the sense that that there are problems in the system and that people are therefore less safe. Now, one reading of the role of the media in politics is that the media really drives political action and and constrains political choice to the extent where, uh, for example, in this case, Justice Secretaries just can't decide to do do otherwise, that that it would be um, career suicide to try and take more progressive action in relation to something like the IPP. My name is Milo Boyd and I work as a news reporter at The Daily Mirror. The Daily
1: Mirror is classed as a tabloid red-top newspaper alongside The Sun and Daily Star. While these papers are known for their sensationalist coverage of celebrities, they also cover crime in a typically more lurid way too.
2: Newspapers, particularly on the right, always lean towards people should serve longer prison sentences and they should only be allowed out when there's a 100% chance that they're not going to commit a crime. But the reality is There is never a 100% chance someone won't commit a crime. The parole board works, looks at loads of data points, the sort of general probability that someone won't commit a crime again, and then whether that probability can be balanced against their right to live freely in civil society. And this very unhelpful way of looking at... Uh, The justice system and the parole board that newspaper headlines do is incredibly black and white and it pushes politicians to react strongly.
3: I'm Richard Garside and I'm the director at the Centre for Crime and Justice Studies. It became clear by around sort of 28, 2009, 2010, by the time that the coalition government came in, that something had gone badly wrong with this sentence. And then actually, you know, to be fair to the coalition government, they did something about it relatively quickly. I mean, we have the the legislation in 2012, which, you know, stopped at least new sentences being imposed. But I think like a lot of people, we just didn't expect that they would have such a drag effect Going on over a decade now, of people who just were kind of trapped in a system that they couldn't get out of, with a you know, kind of toxic bureaucracy that didn't really seem to have the capacity to do anything about it or the willingness. So, you know, it's a really sort of desperate situation now, isn't it? And one that even the architects, the original architects, would say we weren't expecting it to be like this.
5: I share your views entirely on indeterminate sentences. They were a terrible mistake, and at least I abolished the last of things. Heaven knows how many we'd have by now if I hadn't managed to persuade David Cameron to let me at least abolish them so we didn't have any more. But it's now becoming shameful, this huge overhang from a long abandoned system, and I'm just hoping now that the government's action plan includes just that, some action which will resolve the obvious injustice and scandal which the present situation represents. The
1: action plan Clark refers to was published in April 2023. It promises achievable deadlines, performance measures, and data transparency that will, the MOJ says, be of support to every person serving an IPP sentence, whether in prison or in the community. There's um, some prisoners who are well over 10 years over their original tariff. Do you think based on that and considering over the what last said 2 years with all the families I've spoken to the IPP prisoners I've spoken to they have all asked me why Ken Clark didn't abolish the sentence retrospectively in 2012 he had the political clout he had cross party support at that time I had asked him this once but I asked him again perhaps hoping that I could get something else out of him some remorse or perhaps even some signs of regret Do you wish in any part that you had done it retrospectively at that time?
5: I wouldn't have just let everybody out. Uh, And you can't do that now. Uh, They've got to be looked at again and sentenced again. What I was proposing was to say, what uh, uh, I kept trying to argue and get agreement to when I was negotiating with my Prime Minister, was to, to reverse the burden of proofs, how I describe it, that the parole board should let everybody out unless there was some solid reason why they had good reason to think it would be dangerous to do so. That's what I preferred at the time. The strongest suggestion now, after all these years, is you re-sentence them all. But you can't just draw a line under it and let everybody out because you'll find two or three of them Possibly, unfortunately, even more if the prisons had a very bad effect upon them, will be a positive menace once you let them out and you will be blamed.
1: Suddenly, while Lord Clarke was in full flow, we were interrupted by a bell which signalled a vote was about to take place in the upper chamber. We were quickly ushered out and that was the end of our chat. I shared some thoughts with my producers once we were outside Parliament. You know what, I didn't get the chance to ask him, did he realise that so many of these sentences like predominantly affected people from lower economic communities? Was that a consideration then, now, whenever, you know, that they did sort of put a generation of working-class, black, white and brown people in, in prison, and they're still there now?
0: You know, he never blames me, you know, but, you know, we have got to get help. Where do you get help from? Back
1: to Sean's story. I asked Shirley about what hope she
0: had for the future and for Sean's parole. Sean's life's on a line, yeah. If Sean don't get his parole and he gets stuck inside for another two years because the prison system had failed him, then Sean's mental health is going to go down the drain. What toll does this
1: take on you? Because, I mean, I, knew, I know you're involved with Sean and so on, but yeah. this is a lot for you, it
0: sounds like. Yeah, well. this is it's stressful. I'm forever thinking, what can I do to help him? And the windows are open for his parole and paperwork has got to be him. And what does so, it mean if the paperwork isn't in? He won't get out. And then if he don't get out, his next parole will be in two years' time because it's every two years. They're not having my show for two years. I swear to God, you had that prisoner on a roof, right? I will do worse than that. I'll be on a big roof somewhere, I'm telling you, because they're not keeping my boy for the next two years. I won't have it. Meanwhile, Shirley keeps fighting and she keeps campaigning. Free the IPP! It is a person!
1: Here she is at an IPP demo outside Downing Street in April
0: 2022. No data released have committed minor crimes. Free the IPPs! Free the IPPs! Free the IPPs.
1: You and some other people have organised
0: public protests quite yeah. often. What is your intention now? It's publicity, public awareness. And when we do do a protest, I think um, people are interested, people do take our leaflets, some people want to stop and talk about it, you know, and, and you educate people. So people are interested in, well, the IPP sentence. They want to know why people are dying. Why are people dying? They're dying because we have this sentence that the government abolished, but won't abolish it retrospectively. And until it's abolished retrospectively, people are going to keep dying. And so are families.
1: I asked Shirley what she meant when she said, and so are families. How exactly were they dying from the IPP
0: sentence? I was talking to his mother for years. She contacted me on Facebook, Carol. She couldn't get a physical because she had ill health. She was in her 60s. But he was self-harming and trying to take his own life all the time. Shirley then told to me yourself. the story of
1: Carol, a mother of a man serving an IPP sentence who was, like many other IPPs, well over his original tariff. Carol used to phone me about once a for a catch-up, what's happening with the campaign. When Shirley heard that Carol's son was having a crisis,
0: she got concerned. He'd had a breakdown and um, he got to hear. One day I phoned her up because I hadn't heard from her and her husband answered the phone. He said, Cheryl, Carol's dead. I went, no. He said, this IPP sentence killed my wife. It killed her because she was so worried about him. You know, you got your son in prison, he's self-harming, he's scarred from top to bottom with scars, and she couldn't go and see him, and there was no help. They wouldn't move him from that prison, and he killed her. The IPP centres killed her, and her husband said that. You know, these prisoners, they're someone's son, someone's daughter, someone's dad, and it's just not getting out there about how and what is going on with these IPP prisoners with their mental health. It's terrible. Lord Blunkett says he's regretful
1: about the IPP sentence that he implemented, and he's now a vociferous campaigner for justice. So I asked him, what does he think the future holds? What does hope look
4: like? Hope looks like having this broadcast. Hope looks like constantly reiterating the injustice and the way forward, and making that clear that the public can be won over to understanding what's happened, And that they do not need to fear taking sensible, balanced steps to ensure that people can get into a situation where, including those on licence, have some hope that they're going to live a normal life. To his
1: credit, Lord Blunkett now keeps in touch with scores of IPPs and their families, including
0: Shirley and Sean. You've always been there behind me from, from the minute I got in contact with him. He's, uh, he's been really helpful, advising, and, you know, he, he regrets the sentence. You know, he would never have implemented it if he knew this was going to happen. The Labour Party at the time wanted the votes and they wanted to be seen to be tough on crime. And tough on crime they was, they brought this sentence out. But it wasn't meant for your or, or, you know, all these other people that got it. It was meant for people, that, you know, perpetrators, sexual violence, rapists, and Peter Foulson, and terrorists. That's what it was meant for.
1: Yeah, so you speak to other IPP prisoners quite a lot. Yeah. When did you start, and, and how did it come about? Um,
0: I can't remember who's the first one, but there's Jason, there's Paul, there's Mike, there's Gaff, there's, there's so many, there's Leroy, uh, Martin... So you get all different sort of phone calls from, from different people and stuff. A day won't go without to get two or three calls share But you're the so,
1: lifeline. Yeah, Amazing. yeah, loads
0: of people call. Sometimes people contact me. They think I'm like some sort of a lawyer or something. And I have to explain, no, I'm just like your mum or your dad. You know, I, I haven't got no powers. I think Shirley has more power than she
1: realises, Her campaigning has already brought her to the attention of politicians like Lord Blunkett and others who are pushing for change. Whilst it's not easy, and she's been pushed to the edge many times, she has an inner strength too, which is also her superpower.
0: She's already planned her final act of protest if the worst was ever to happen to Sean. If anything happened to my son, that's where his coffin would go. That's where I'd take him for 24 hours. He'd be outside the ministry, down the street. Parliament, but I'd also block the roads as well. Put his coffin in the middle of the road. Cause the scene. This is why you did done to my son. So that's why I fight for Sean so much. I know you've never hit nobody. You know, he done a mad thing when I like, robbed a mobile phone and he shouldn't have done it. But he'd never ever laid a hand on anyone where he was where he would harm him, you know. So yeah, I feel sorry for him. You know. Sad. So sad.
1: If you want to get in touch, you can find me and the team on Twitter, Instagram or TikTok at trapped pod. If you want to do something, you can tell a friend to listen to this series. Knowledge is power and the more who know, the harder it is for injustice to take place. If you want to do something more active, you can write to your MP and tell them to raise questions about IPP prisoners in Parliament. Some campaigners have started the petition hosted on the UK government website. Search the hashtag Justice for IPPs on social media for more info and the link. Please subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. And stay tuned for a new episode dropping soon.